unapologetically confessional, unabashedly intellectual, taking the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, your online somewhat informed conversation about literature, theology, philosophy, and other things that human beings do well. Your hosts are Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome to the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is David Grubbs, your host this week. Together with me, as always, is Michael Farmer. How are you you doing, doing? Michael? Doing well, sir. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. All things considered. All right. On NPR. Um, And also, Nathan Gilmore. How are you, sir? Ah, doing all right. Back to hold you down and make puns. (laughs) Uh, That's pretty much what I gathered from last week's episode. We should uh, we should apologize to Nathan and to our listeners for the things we may have advertently <laughs> said about him last week. But that's what happens when you uh, decide your family is more important than this podcast. There you go. Well, I, I do remember finding out that I was a seething ball of rage in the week that I was out. So apparently, you know, so, sometime, Michael, you're going to have to not be here. And then Nathan and I can talk about you. Uh, problem is, I do the recording. Oh, yeah, that would be technically difficult, wouldn't it? Okay. Um, We've got some feedback uh, this week. It was uh, posted on our podcast website uh, about comedy last week from – who was that from? From Phil Rutledge. Okay. Um, Which uh, I believe uh, you you responded to, Nathan, correct? Yes, I did. Okay, so I guess – Check back at the website, and you can see that little conversation there. Um, apparently, we're being uh, uh, held to the fire because uh, Michael and I don't think Family Guy is really that funny. Um, and by the way, I tend to agree with the two of you on that score. So, uh, Another uh, ex-Cathedra announcement from the Christian Humanist Podcast, Family Guy is not funny. <laughs> <laughs> this is our third, folks, if you're keeping score at home. Uh, did uh, did we uh, did we any of the three of us come to agreement on uh, anything that we all thought was funny? The first half of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I think we all agreed on. Right, right. I think we all enjoy Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as well. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which I think we're talking about again today. Excellent. Well, we'll get to that. Um, what we are talking about today, we did comedy last week, and this week we're going to be working with epic, epic movies the word epic gets thrown around a lot today when talking about movies. A lot of the big movies that we see in theaters have, have that label attached to them. And today, being the uh, literary types that we are, uh, we're going to latch onto that and say some things about epic as a genre, its history, and uh, how it's still with us today in some form or other um, on the big screen. So, uh, I guess, I guess, first of all, um, how is the word epic generally understood when you see it applied to things today? What, uh, what do you guys read it as meaning? Well, I mean, I think one thing, I mean, especially in the last couple of years, uh, and I, I have to think this is partly the contribution of the website fail blog, uh, <laughs> the word epic, you know, appended to any noun uh simply means grand 
or impressive or in the case of fail blog extremely amusing uh <laughs> so you know it's one of those uh it's one of those words that well i i think it's you know somewhat analogous to the word so in the 90s you know uh after about 327 episodes of friends where so became an intensifier without needing any sort of clause to finish it out. Uh, now I deal with freshman writers every year who think it's all right to say that, you know, this or that is so important or this or that is so skillful. Yeah. yeah it drives me crazy. You know what's worse? And this is off topic. Uh, random. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, That's sure. so random. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't mean that it's random. They mean that they don't understand it. Or that it amuses them, or something of the sort. And likewise, oh. epic just kind of means long a lot of times, right? I mean, it, it, <laughs> oh sure, when some, you're talking about movies, mm-hmm. so, so, something is epic if it's big, or or commercials, or a track on an album that takes up the whole B side, or things like that. For our younger listeners, a B side is a term that used to be applied to record albums. <laughs> they were made of vinyl, I think. Well, those are the ways that it's generally used, uh, the, the ways that it's kind of been watered down into just a synonym for really, really big. But, uh, well, I, I think we can't, we can't let that definition stand. Um, I think I'm going to start uh, with you, Nathan, since you are our, our resident Aristotelian. Um, and Aristotle is the father of the literary generic classifications that we still use to a large extent. What does he say about epic? Certainly. And I, I will say, David, that when I got the show notes, I had to go back into my Aristotle because all I could remember is what he said about tragedy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the reason is that for Aristotle, epic is largely a footnote to tragedy. Uh, Aristotle says that all of the unities that apply to tragedy of place, of time, of character, uh, still apply to a good epic. He praises Homer in that respect uh, for not trying to take on the entire Trojan War in the Iliad, uh, but rather focusing in on Achilles and his wrath. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the other thing he says, and you know, this is you know Aristotle uh, being Aristotle, paying attention to the concrete details he says that you know because epic is a textual art form uh rather than a staged art form uh you can have simultaneous scenes in an epic uh that are not possible in a stage drama or at least in a classical athenian stage drama uh so for instance you can have parallel scenes going on in heaven or i guess on mount olympus uh, and on the fields outside of the city of Troy. So, you know, I think he's pretty sharp in that respect. He says, you know, you've got the, you've still got speeches, you've still got characters, you've still got uh, ethical examinations of those characters, but you have the possibility of simultaneous scenes. Mm. And uh, and I did I did look it up to make sure that Aristotle did say something about epic because I was yes yes <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, what I got out of it and uh, is the notion of of unity on a grander scale yes that uh, that the epic um, the epic has a wider scope than uh, than tragedy does but that doesn't turn it into this this big conglomeration or accretion of of distinct things. It's still 
in in what Aristotle says. It's still one story. Right, right. And that's, you know, again, why he praises Iliad more highly than the Odyssey, because the Iliad does confine itself to, you know, a more compact span of time, even though it's the longer poem by far. The Odyssey's right. like a series of television episodes, really. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that as we get into it, we're pro- we, we, we may uh, end up having to, to resurrect the notion of how our how our preferences in terms of epic may shape our definition of epic. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, the other ways of thinking about epic uh, that when I was taught epic uh, back in the day was to look at the generic conventions of of it. Uh, what literary devices seem to crop up in classical epics. Um, Things like, uh, well, you know, the invocation of the muse, things like that. Do you guys have any favorite epic conventions? That uh, may be or- the strangest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the table and say that I'm not a big fan of epics, as, as they're traditionally defined. Uh, get that right <clears throat> out of the way up front. And um, most of the things that make them epics, most of the things you just mentioned, David, are the things that bore me. Um, really? I could really go the rest of my life without reading another one of Homer's catalogs of things that Achilles <laughs> stole from Agamemnon, and that, that would be just fine. Um, I understand the literary purpose of these things. I, I, just, I just think they're so boring. <laughs> Sorry, I I That's kind right. of like the Odyssey parts of it. Um, I I I can't stand the Iliad. Um, oh man! And uh, we won't even get into the Aeneid, which I think is uh, I I think it's like a I don't know, it's like a television film of the uh, of the uh, Iliad. <laughs> oh man! Well, trying to follow up on that, <laughs> yeah, and. This will probably come up uh, when we talk about, you know, epic as it translates into movies. But, I mean, one of the things that I do enjoy about epic poetry, and it, it, is, it is not universal to epics, uh, but it's fairly common, is the journey into the underworld. Of course, I, I moderated the episode on literary hell a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because so many epics deal with, you know, journeys into the land of the dead... Uh, and because those journeys say so much about how the poet imagines the land of the living, you know, I find those bits of epics just utterly fascinating. And incidentally, yeah. that's why, you know, I, and I, I realize I'm jumping the gun and getting to movies, but I think that that's one of the reasons why, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou bothers me, and it's not one of my favorite Coen Brothers films, although it's still a good movie. Uh, it's because they take these epic bits and they squander their potential. You know, the journey into the underworld becomes a movie theater scene that lasts 20 seconds, you know, and I think, Oh, you know, this could have been, this could have been really good, but they decided not to. They also claim never to have read the Odyssey. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I believe them. And then, well, then they also (laughs) went, they also went back on it and said that that was never meant to be based off the Odyssey anyway. And they just made that up during the press tour. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to pin them down as to as to reality, um, just in general. Like Fargo, at the uh, beginning of Fargo, it tells you that it's based on a true story, which is um, 
you know, utterly false. It's not right, based, right. based on anything. So, uh, the same goes for Obata Warta. The degree to which it's based on the Odyssey is uh, at least up for debate. <laughs> okay. Um, my favorite, because I am an epic geek, um, my favorite are the epic similes. Uh, which I love, I love them in Homer, I love them in the Odyssey, uh, especially the, uh, the, the Cyclops getting his eye drilled out scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is just fantastic. Um, I love Milton's too. Milton's epic similes are pretty grand. Uh, the, you know, Satan in hell as a gigantic whale wallowing around, um, is, I, I, I just think that's fantastic. But I, anyway, that's, that's me. Um, let's see. But not always, uh, not always do these conventions apply to everything. Um, one of the most recently cited ones is, uh, the in media race, uh, uh, beginning that uh, the idea that the story starts off with the action already happening, um, and I think that's that's actually a convention that's that's still uh, pretty uh, pretty prevalent in in film and on and, TV and in, and in literature. I mean, ev- just about everything written since about eighteen hundred has begun in Medius race. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's funny though that that. Uh, that that Beowulf has very frequently been been held up as a as a, as an epic that was imitating the Aeneid, but uh, it could not be it, it could not be further from in media race and it's in its beginning. Um, I mean, Beowulf begins like five generations back from the main story. Right. You start with a <laughs> genealogy rather than a scene. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I I, I always thought that was funny that. When Beowulf was first introduced to to me, it was in a Britlet survey, and the class started off with, "This is the definition of epic. These are the conventions of an epic. Now we're going to look at Beowulf, an epic." And I was like, "It doesn't. This no. It doesn't begin this way." It also doesn't have the nationalist component as much because it's a British epic that takes place in Denmark. Yeah, I uh, well. Actually, that's that's a that's one of the one of the topics I'm getting at in my dissertation. But I think the short answer to that is is that for Beowulf's audience, the notion of ethnic and national de- identity is much more complicated than uh, than it is today. Um, I, I I think that Beowulf is is ethnically diverse and kind of confusing in terms of which side are we supposed to take. Because that was actually kind of the situation that uh, that its audience saw themselves in ethnically. Um, but you're right; it's not it's not clearly. I mean, it's it's no Aeneid. You know who's good, the good guys in the Aeneid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that one's pretty clear. Um, and that's actually uh, leads to another definition that I found. Um, it's from. Uh, a handbook of literature came out in 1936. Uh, Thrall and Hibbard, and uh, I've I've seen it cited all over the place. Um, 
and the, the, that definition definition that that definition is an epic is a long narrative poem an elevated style presenting characters of high position and adventures forming an organic whole through their relation to a central heroic figure and through their development of episodes important to the history of a nation or a race so I think that we pretty much covered that definition in terms of elevated style and organic holes, but uh, this uh, this definition kind of brings to the fore the notion of central heroic figures and the idea of the importance to the history of a nation or race. It, it's um, interesting when when C.S. Lewis lectured on Paradise Lost, he actually I don't know if he cited this particular handbook, uh, but he ran straight at that definition. And it's focused mm-hmm. on, you know, the nationalist angle. And he said, whoever wrote that, you know, had probably read Aeneid most recently and, and had entirely forgotten about Homer. Right. <laughs> you know, because, you know, he points out rightly that, you know, um, the Iliad really isn't concerned about the Trojan War taken as a whole. You don't get the beginning of it. You don't get the ending of it. It's mm-hmm. really about the wrath of Achilles. I mean, he, he kind of tells you in that opening line, you know. Uh, this is going to be about Achilles and his wrath. Right. Right. And even, even more so, I think the Odyssey. Sure. Because, because the Odyssey doesn't even have very obvious, you know, international wars. (laughs) You know, like which nation are we supposed to be rooting for? The, the nation of castaways against the nation of monsters. Uh, Yeah. And, the, you actually get a shattering of national identity in the Odyssey, right? Everybody comes together. All the different kingdoms come together to fight the Trojan War. By the time of the Odyssey, they're scattered all over, and uh, Telemachus has to uh, go from kingdom to kingdom asking about his father. You get the right. feeling Menelaus and Odysseus wouldn't talk much anymore, even if Odysseus was back home. Yeah, they were. they remember him, but those were the glory days. Um, well, and I wonder, I mean, 1936, you know, this is a time when, you know, classical philology is, you know, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of at its apex as far as scholarly prestige. Mm-hmm. And I well, wonder the, if, you know, this this idea of nationalist literature, uh, you know, is something that I wonder if this definition is so tightly tied uh, to that whole constellation of inquiry that, you know, that's why the definition seems a little bit dated, even to C.S. Lewis. You're right, and and that's one of the things that, in uh, in working uh, the this, the stuff that I've been doing with Beowulf, what one of the the biggest things that that I've had to to wrestle with is the the 19th century and early 20th century reception of that poem was so shaped by scholars of different different nations that existed then, you know, lines that were drawn on the map in the 1800s and the early 1900s, those scholars arguing about which of them could claim Beowulf as theirs. Right, right. Um, with the English saying it's in our language and the Danes saying, but it's set here. And then there were some people in, uh, the, there were some some scholars in Germany who were actually claiming no, um, actually, the 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 Geats were were uh, in in this place in in uh, in you know northern northern Germany, and the 
basically this 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 big nationalist argument over who gets the epic because the Germans didn't have uh, it, it, the Germans didn't have a coherent epic really uh, they had they had the the medieval you know they had medieval um you know romance but they didn't have anything that was truly ancient in 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 the way that Homer was ancient and and Beowulf seemed to them a a way of establishing uh, not only their their sense of ethnic and national identity, but also the the age and therefore uh, the nobility of it. Um, since then, it, that conversation has uh, kind of fallen out of favor um, because that because of things like World War Two. <laughs> well, yeah. David, these two critics who formulated that definition, Thoreau and Hibbard, do you know if they were Americans? Um, honestly, don't know. It took me, it took me a long time before I even figured out what the source of the quote was. Because that era, that era in American criticism is an era that's very interested in defining what it is to be an American. Mm. Mm. Um. So it would make sense that if if they were American critics, that they would be interested in other kind of uh, literature of national identity. Right. Well, I mean, the other reason, just to go back to, I mean, why does this seem dated? I mean, part of it, I think, Michael, you're right. I mean, it has to do with not only an American search for identity, but a German search for identity, so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. But I think it also has to do with, I mean, there are poems that we want to claim as epics, uh, like Dante's comedy, like Paradise Lost, that really, because of their cosmopolitan vision, just don't fit this definition. You know, I mean, Paradise Lost is not a poem about England uh, any more than Dante's comedy is a poem about Florence. You know, although maybe maybe not quite. I mean, Dante is is more of a nationalist epic than Paradise Lost, if only because he decided to write it in. Vulgar Italian. No, oh, but so did John Milton. He wrote his in English rather than Latin. Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough about 17th century England, but weren't weren't people writing serious works of literature in in English? They were. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and it just just the fact that he w- he wanted to write the great English epic. Um, now whether he and beat to it. Well, but he was. Uh, I mean, what I remember, Nathan, is 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 that he was basically sifting through English and British legendary and history, trying to find what he thought was a suitably elevated subject for his great epic. And uh, you know, for a while it was going to be Arthurian, but then he researched the history and found that there probably wasn't actually a King Arthur at all, which was. Um, disillusioning. And For some reason, that was a deal breaker for him. When there obviously wasn't an Achilles or a uh, Odysseus or an Aeneas, I don't think that that was necessarily clear to uh, to to Milton that that the the Homeric epics did not have um, actual historical figures in them. I mean, what, what do you? I mean, do do you think that they would have seen the the Homeric epics as fiction, Nathan? Boy, that's I hard mean, to say. It it really I mean, is hard to say. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, by the time you get to 
the 18th century, you've definitely got some strong skepticism in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, I know, I know Dante sticks figures from, you know, from all, uh, from Homer's epics and Virgil's epics in the underworld. Right. But he also puts not, minotaurs in there. Well, I know, but not, <laughs> not as monsters, but as, but as damned souls along with the other damned souls. Um, right. Helen of Troy is in there with Simiramis and, you know, the other souls that are being kind of swept around by their lusts. You know? mm-hmm. um, and whether that's, whether he's just using her, her as a, I don't know, a, as, as, as an image, as an icon of lust uh, or, or actually thinks she was a historical person that, that, that would be difficult to say. He's but, not going to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, one thing that one thing that definitely comes out of this uh, the the period when the, that this definition arose out of was the uh, oral formulaic composition theory, which is uh, the idea that there were these these kind of norms of poetic composition, uh, these poetic formulas that would make extemporaneous uh, verbal recitation of poetry. Um, more manageable, you know, with with the idea that that there was this this period this before the poems were written down in which they were being passed down and 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 recited orally, and that you know some of the the conventions of epic like the like the catalogs, um, like epic similes, like the epithets in in the epic, like the wine dark sea, that those those kinds of formulae were were used to to facilitate memorization. Um, but one of the things this distinction created was that between the primary epics, which are supposed to somehow arise out of a national culture and be the essence of that culture, and the secondary literary epics, which are imitations of the first kind. Um, and even in that, I think, I mean, even that is getting uncomfortably close to uh, I think no, notions of national identity and essentializing that. Before we moved on, David, I wanted to um, I wanted to talk about my jealousy about that nationalistic mythic past. You find, if not in every epic, in an awful lot of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as an Americanist, we don't really have anything like that. We don't have a national epic poem. Um, so we, we don't we don't have we don't have a piece of poetry that explains the history of our country um, the way you do in certainly in the Aeneid certainly in um, Spencer's The Fairy Queen mm-hmm. uh, the Chanson Roland the uh, Orlando Furioso we don't we don't have anything like that the closest thing we have in terms of actual epic poetry is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's The Song of Hiawatha which uh, <laughs> number one nobody reads anymore. <laughs> And number two isn't a mythical history for Longfellow's America, but for these uh, Indian tribes of the uh, upper Midwest. So it doesn't really count. Um, here's a funny story. I put that on my comps list because I thought the Song of Hiawatha was like 30 pages long. Turns out it's 400. Oh, oh heavens. What? Yeah. yeah, the Song of Hiawatha is long. And it's not a children's poem because, like like you, I remember the, um, the Disney Silly yeah. Symphony short. Yeah. No, it's it's a very serious poem. Wow. I'll and, be... Who knew? Anyway, so I'm jealous of that nationalistic, mythic <laughs> past 
that you get in the epics because we just don't have one. The closest thing we really have is um, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, which is not epic or poetry, but it is kind of our national myth- mythic past. Right. So, so you could you could still find some things in in American literature that maybe s- serve the function in some way without necessarily imitating the form. Certainly, and like I said, that's what that's what critics in the um, middle part of the 20th century, to to a large extent, were doing. They were trying to define the American character, usually as opposed to authoritarian societies like Nazi Germany or, or Soviet Russia. But right. we, you know, we don't we don't have something that's easily codified the way the Aeneid is easily codified, or the the way. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. Some of the um, Scandinavian sagas are. Uh, are codified national past. Uh, there are um, mm, the, the, that I think actually gets gets at uh, another issue, which the whole primary versus secondary epic distinction um, is 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 a, actually simplifies something that's complicated. When you talk about the Scandinavian past, you're talking about uh, prose sagas family sagas written in Iceland and they're literary okay uh, you also have the the edda the eddas uh, the prose and poetic eddas which are um, myth uh, the pro the poetic eddas are mythological songs um, s- fragments of story that had been preserved the prose edda was the work of a, a of a fellow named Snorri Sturluson in the 1100s who collected bits of story, bits of song, collected manuscripts, and put them together in what is called the prose edda, which is sort of the bullfinch's mythology of the North. Um, the problem is that in in the 19th century, the early 20th century, um, scholars looked at looked at collections like the prose edda looked at the fragments of the poetic Edda in the same way that they were looking at Homer as kind of naive productions of a national mythos. That they could look at these at these stories and somehow get at the essence of what these people really were. Um, as if in some way these stories were epiphenomena of the nations, the ethnic groups simply being what they were. <laughs> Um, the problem is that Snorri Sturluson was a man who selected things and was trying to put together pieces in a way that made sense. Uh, similarly, we don't have Homer as an orally performed poet. The earliest Homer we have is still written down. We don't know what choices the guy that wrote it down made. Sure. Um, so We I, actually I, I have no idea whether Homer's a real person or not. Well, e- even if he's not, somebody wrote it down. Or if and, it was written down by another person called Homer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and I don't want to get I don't I don't want to get into that argument, but uh, <laughs> I I, th- I think the problem is that that when they were latching onto to these epics as the original epics as real evidence of what their actual national character is, they they were. St- 
they were trying to not view them as literary products, and they still very much are. Even an even an impromptu poem on an occasion is 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 being produced by a human mind and a human will, who uh, who is choosing uh, material in a way that will appeal to the audience and create the effect that the poet desires. So uh, I, I think something that's uh, maybe one of, maybe one of the approaches that that's been more recent uh, is is to to look at these epics not not as wow let's look and see what the ancestors were really like but let's look and see what one writer one author what vision of of the past they wanted to present and what 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 goals they might have had for this vision. We were discussing this episode on Facebook. Uh, you mentioned, Michael, uh, th- something that uh, Bakhtin's uh, – a discussion that Bakhtin has about Epic. Um, what does he bring to the table? Well, I wanted to uh, say something about Bakhtin first in case our listeners aren't familiar with his work. He was a, a literary theorist in Soviet Russia in the uh, I don't know early part of the 20th century. And his criticism has, at the very least, this kind of veneer of Marxism to it. Um, the degree to which he believed Marxist doctrine is up for debate. People say everything from he was a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist to he was a Christian existentialist who used the language of Marxism to keep from being sent to Siberia. I'm not qualified to make that distinction. But uh, he wrote two major books. He wrote one on Dostoevsky and one on uh, Francois Rabelais. And then he wrote a bunch of other essays that have been collected in various collections. Um, his work was translated in the 60s and 70s, and it became fairly important for post-structuralism, but he's not really a post-structuralist. And he's, um, he's sort of his own school, and he's much more readable than a lot of literary theorists, so uh, I, I do recommend him. My wife hates him, um, <laughs> but I, I like him okay. Uh, Bakhtin's point, and this comes from an essay called epic and novel, and it's uh, collected in English in in a book called The Dialogic Imagination. Um, But his point is to contrast the epic with the novel, and really not just the epic, um, even though the the essay is called epic and novel. He really wants to contrast the novel with every other form of literature, and he says all these other forms are dead. He's really an apologist for the novel. Um, He says the novel is the only living art form because it's the only one that comes along after printing, so the rules aren't set. Um just yet. So here's how he defines the epic. And it has it has three parts. Quote, one, a national epic past serves as the subject for the epic, and I, I guess we can debate that. Mm. Two, a national tradition, not personal experience and the free thought that grows out of it, serves as the source for the epic. And three, an absolute epic distance separates the epic world from contemporary reality, that is, from the time in which the singer, the author, and his audience lives. So the main thing about the epic is that the world it describes is completely inaccessible to anyone writing or reading the epic. Um, It's unchangeable, and it's closed off. And Bakhtin says that, quote, there is no place in the epic world for any open-endedness, indecision, indeterminacy. There are no loopholes in it through which we glimpse the future. It suffices unto itself, neither supposing any continuation nor requiring it. So his problem with the epic, if you want to call it a problem, is that you can't... um, live entering and live entering is his model for reading it's pretty much a conversation between the reader and the author but the epic because it's basically a monologue doesn't leave any room open for conversation either between the author and the reader or among voices inside the text and because those voices inside the text are what Bakhtin 
um, they're, they're, they're what Bakhtin calls polyphony, and they're very, very important to him, and, and they're the best thing about the novel for him. So that the epic doesn't have it, um, it, if it's not a failure of the epic, it's why he's not particularly interested in the epic, except as it contrasts with the novel. So that's his critique of the epic, and um, he doesn't think it's a bad thing, he just thinks it's, t- its time has come and gone, and that the novel kind of reigns supreme now. And as someone who studies primarily novels, I agree with him. Uh, what do you guys <laughs> think of his definition, his critique of, of epic? I don't know the singular voice. I mean, I, you know, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm most interested in Christian era epics. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not necessarily thinking of Virgil or Homer here, uh, but I think about Dante and I mean, I think about how much of that poem, you know, is made up of dialogues between, you know, Dante and whoever is his guide at the moment, you know, whether it be Virgil, whether it be Beatrice, uh, whether it be, Help me out, David. Who is it who's there with them in the Empyrean? Gosh, I haven't gotten that far. Uh, Wait, I, I thought we established that in the Hell episode. I've okay, yeah, I, you, didn't, I, you didn't read the rest of the Divine Comedy since the Hell episode, David? Uh, I bought it. <laughs> At any rate, I think it's St. Bonaventure, but don't quote me on that. I'm going to look it up after we get done recording so I can issue my own mea culpa on the blog. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, you know, I, I think that because so much of that poem is made up of dialogue, uh, you know, I have a hard time, you know, saying that the narrative voice is the singular overpowering voice. And actually, I mean, now that I think about it for a couple seconds, I mean, you know, I think about the strong tradition of epic speeches. And although I know it's not the same as, you know, modern modern era novelistic, you know, sort of realistic dialogue uh you know i i have a, a hard time thinking of it as monolithic uh you know and it might be you know that that sort of strain in derrida that's always there you know when he wants to say that you know there's you know sort of platonism which is very monolithic but then there's plato's text uh which is dialogic and interesting and that's why you know he says that to his dying day he's always going to be reading plato uh you know i I think that, you know, Michael, to to respond to that just a little bit, I can see how that could be a tendency. I don't know how often it actually is. It makes sense. As far as the Divine Comedy, I'm not sure. And um, I'll give you a true confession. I did not read the entirety of that 90-page essay um, to prepare for this. Um, I basically just <laughs> read the notes I took on it last time I read it. Gotcha. <laughs> he he very well may not consider the Divine Comedy to be an epic because ah, it, I see, I see. it doesn't fit his three criteria. It doesn't have a national uh, past, um, as we were saying earlier, even if it has more of one than Paradise Lost. Okay. So I, I'm not sure if he if he would even consider it an epic the way Homer is. I gotcha. Okay. I mean, David, does all, does all that that we just heard fit, you know, some of the epics that you spend time with? Um, I've, I've actually read articles that applied, um, the, the, the notions of, 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 uh, Bakhtin's emphasis on dialogue, uh, to Beowulf. Um, one of the things about which the Beowulf poet, the, the voice of the narrator is incredibly reticent is how we're supposed to take, um, many of the speeches, many of the, the exchanges between characters, that take place uh, in the poem. Um, 
and there's a great deal of argument over uh, over even what what those what what the conversations are about. Uh, some uh, some arguments argue for, uh, for example, the uh, queen Queen Wellfowl, the the wife of Hrothgar, after uh, after the uh, during the banquet after Beowulf has has killed Grendel, um, she, uh, the queen passes around a cup, and she speaks to several different characters, and. You can read it as simply this is just an epic celebration. Uh, this is just you know sort of rote formulaic speech, but at the same time, uh, you can you can also read it as she is addressing simultaneously in the same speech, she's addressing different people of the audience and intending them to hear her say different things. Um, you know she asks. For uh, she simply says in kind of a rote formulaic way, we hope Beowulf that you'll remember our gifts to you and that you'll be uh, a friend to our sons after the king is is dead. Well, to Beowulf, that's you know, it's it's a thank you, but it's also an appeal for political support. To uh, the queen's nephew, who uh, who you know, and this is a particular reading of the of the poem. Um, to the queen's nephew, who she sees as an impending threat to her sons, this is a warning that she's that she's getting Beowulf on her son's side. So the nephew had better not mess with the sons, which later he does, uh, uh, kills them and takes the throne. Um, so th there's this uh, the voice of this woman in Beowulf who seems to be speaking in a very complex way to the different members of this. Uh, of this audience in inside the poem, it's not just a narrator going through the formulas, repeating the you know the the prescribed speeches to celebrate the big epic hero. There's there's much more complicated stuff going on. Well, I don't know. Well, and and one thing that happens when the post-structuralists read Bakhtin, and I think this is actually, and this may be the only kind word you ever hear me say about post-structuralism on this podcast. So listen up. Yeah, listen up. One thing they do that I think is actually helpful is is move this distinction between polyphony and um, whatever, mon monophily? I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> single voice and, and dialogue from the author to the reader. And so it becomes less of what's actually in the text and how you read the text. Okay. Um. And I, I think that may be a more helpful thing to think about than than Bakhtin's somewhat narrow and and the way you guys are talking ill-informed um, definition of epic itself. There's an epic way of reading and a novelistic way of reading, perhaps. Right. Well, and my, and my suspicion is, I mean, that because I've not read this essay by Bakhtin, I'm probably missing some of his salient points. So, I mean, I don't mean to mm -hmm. paint Bakhtin as some sort of idiot that you know, is illiterate and never has read his Homer. I mean, I'm sure he has points. I think that, you know, because I've not familiarized myself with it, I just yeah. don't get him. My guess is that he was writing, that, that what he was writing would be more applicable as a critique to the way epics were being read in his time. That, and that, that that's, a, and, that's a good and, point as well. And that he was teaching, uh, that, that he taught how to read the novel and that what, uh, what, some of the work that I've, some of the the scholarly work I've read that's been done with Beowulf is in fact taking what Bakhtin has said, and 
reading reading the dialogue in, in Beowulf as a novel, looking for looking for voices other than uh, the narrators to to crop up in the story. So maybe it's not so much that Bakhtin got it wrong as it was that he was critiquing the the approach and then showing another way to look at things. And because we all we all read it from his way now, he seems simple. Right. But that's usually the way it is with the, those guys who come along and change our paradigms. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that uh, yeah, you were t- uh, when I was talking to you, Nathan, yesterday, uh, you seemed to be bringing up the the idea of the the mock epic, um, the 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 story that takes the conventions and turns them on their head or whatever. Uh, what were you getting at? Well, actually, it's it's interesting. I you know when you gave me the show notes, I thought, well, that's precisely the opposite of what I was talking about. But let me talk oh, a little oh, okay. bit about what mock epic is, and I'll I'll try to explain why I had something precisely opposite in mind. Okay. Uh, a a mock epic, you know, is a form that really rises up in the 17th, 18th centuries, has its heyday, and then largely disappears uh, because the novelistic form becomes you know so dominant literarily that there's no need to mock epics anymore. Uh, but, you know, two of the more famous ones are uh, Hudibras on one hand and The Rape of the Lock by Alexander Pope on the other. Uh, what you've got in a mock epic is you've got entirely absurd subject matter, uh, but with this high-flown, well, epic language. Uh, and so, you know, mock epic is one of the things that largely deflates uh, the genre of epic after the day of Spencer and Milton when it enjoys a renaissance of sorts. Now, I, you know, what I had in mind, and I'm going to go ahead and segue, I'm going to take the reins from you and segue into movies here. Uh, <laughs> what I it. had in mind were movies that I think in pretty smart ways uh, take novelistic characters in a comedy movie setting, but work in the episodic structure of an epic and the one that I really had in mind was the movie Garden State. Michael, have you seen that one? Yes, I hate that movie. I'm so I'm you sad really to hate say. That? Well, see, see, I you know, and, and I really enjoyed that movie precisely because uh, the sort of turning point in the movie uh, is not your standard romantic comedy bit where you know they have a brief breakup and then there's a musical montage and then they realize that things are all right and they get back together, you know, which is every Hugh Grant movie ever made. Uh, but you know, in that movie, the turning point, the epiphany is actually a journey to the underworld. You know, it's when they make that trip. And I honestly don't remember why they had to go to that geological research station, but they actually travel down into a chasm, uh, you know, down into the earth and down there they discover, you know, this young couple who sort of gave up on trying to be grand and, see the world and, you know, change things as they are and decided to instead find a sort of domestic happiness. And that's really where the Zach Braff character, you know, realizes that his L.A. aspirations aren't going to be fulfilling. And, you know, it's one of those things that's definitely not epic in a doctrinaire way, uh, but I think it is a very interesting appropriation of the journey to the underworld, which is my, you know, one of my favorite parts of epic convention. 
I never even thought of it that way, Nathan. I was so distracted by how much I hate Natalie Portman in that movie. <laughs> well, I, Natalie Portman, I mean, a fine person, I'm sure. And from what I hear, she probably would have done well in law school. Not a great actress. <laughs> no. <laughs> but no, I never, I never thought this. of it that way. Now, now I'm, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Town, which has essentially, have you seen that movie? It has essentially the same plot. No, Cam- I've not seen that one. Cameron Crowe movie, movie that came out a few few years later, and uh, I'm trying to figure out if there's a descent into the underworld in that movie. Uh, All right. Well, but anyway, I mean, that, that's what I was mentioning earlier. That's why uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou disappointed me in that respect, because the descent into the underworld scene is not a turning point at all in the Coen Brothers film. You know, mm-hmm. if anything, it's a brief sight gag that you pass over and then you know, you go on to more musical numbers. You're alleging that the descent into the underworld and No Brother Where Art Thou is the movie theater scene? We thought you was a toad, that scene? Yeah, yeah. Why? Where, where would you see the underworld descent? Well, I was going to say that it would be the um, KKK rally. Ah, okay, I hadn't thought about Ooh. that. Because, I mean, they sing Oh Death, right? But the yeah, only thing, I suppose so. I suppose so. There's the there's the burning crosses, and but the only the only thing that would keep me from saying that is that the John Goodman Cyclops character nearly gets blinded in that scene, so it could just as well be the the Cyclops. Um, yeah, I think maybe that's why I, I didn't think of that as the underworld because of the prominence of John Goodman in that scene. But I would I would be more apt to call that one the underworld scene than the the movie theater, which you're right is just a just a okay because, because I suppose they do rescue Robert Johnson from hell there. Tommy Johnson, I think. Tommy yeah. Johnson, my bad, my bad. <laughs> it's okay, you got me. Uh, when we talked about uh, deals with the devil. Yeah, that's right. Now I've I've fallen into my own spider web. <laughs> well, maybe we've run up against. Uh... The uh, the Cohen brothers' uh, alleged not reading of the Odyssey. Um, maybe, maybe this is a this this is just them playing with the material rather than us misunderstanding the pattern. Well, I don't know because I mean I you know I'm going to talk about Cohen brothers a fair bit next week when we do tragedy because I think they are filmmakers who really get sort of the, some of that Aristotelian structure to things. Yeah, I just okay. think they do it better in Big Lebowski and Raising Arizona than they do in Oh Brother. Okay. Well, let's... Uh, we've been talking so much more about epic than epic movie. Um, I, and really, I think that that stems largely from the fact that I'm just obsessed with the epic. Um, but epic films uh I mean, today we I mean, we said at the beginning that they generally refer to you know just a scale of movie um but then you know in our in our discussions of what a literary epic is most literary epics actually are kind of huge aristotle says that they have a grand scale to them um i mean can can what we call epic films today which are really just huge can we can we legitimately call them in that sense epic farmer won't you hit that well i um and for some reason i was thinking about the dark knight because it was the longest recent movie i could think of so I, it, it got called epic and and if if we're dealing with bakhtin's terms mm-hmm. um i i would say the dark knight is novelistic and not epic but mm-hmm. because it, it is it is quite open you're you're not told at all what to think um and the, the stakes are personal instead of um instead of national um mm-hmm. and things like that 
uh, but there are legitimate epic movies coming out, right? I didn't see 300 because it's not my style of movie at all, but it would it would qualify for for Bakhtin's, uh definition of epic, right? It's, it's yeah, uh, really, really awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I know, but I I, I think that's. It. I mean, I think Michael's right in uh, that that the epic mainly today lives as the period war film, um, which uh, I mean, can you guys think of a movie that you would rightly call that that you would consider rightly called epic that isn't a war movie? War movie, no, but I wonder about the period war film because I mean, when I thought of epic film, I mean, the first thing and David, I'm going to kick this straight at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be Pete Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Right. I mean, I guess you could call that period, but I mean, you'd be stretching the definition. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I sometimes wonder though, I, I watched, I watched the Lord of the Rings, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings, the, the, the books and I love the movies, but then, um, you know, I've, I've also seen, uh, that really, really crappy King Arthur movie, um, oh my God, that was a bad movie. Well, and and other you know kind of film depictions of what's supposed to be the legitimate Middle Ages, or Dark Ages at least, and they seem to be very Lord of the Ringsy, um, you know, <laughs> as as if you know in the imagination at least of the people who are producing these films, the actual Middle Ages and the fictional Middle Earth are not really that different. Um, and maybe that's, you know, uh, I mean, half, half, half sort of pop culture ignorance and half the success of Tolkien in, you know, replicating the, the mood that he was extracting out of, uh, medieval literature, which he was, you know, imitating in the Lord of the Rings. Um, David, I'll be honest with you deep in my reptile brain. The Middle Ages looks like a combination of Lord of the Rings and uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, I know it's probably not logically, but emotionally, when I think about the Middle Ages, that's what I think about. You can blame that on my being a dumb Amer- American or whatever, but um, yeah. I I don't think you're alone in that, frankly. Um, I, I Yeah, it, if it makes you feel any better, I think of the colonial days of this country as being um, basically one big um, Liberty Square from Disney World. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, maybe maybe this is this is just evidence of the way uh, of the way we think of history. I mean, I have a hard time thinking about Greeks you know, ancient Greek culture in a way that either that, that doesn't either invoke the death scene of Socrates or a whole lot of Spartans. I always taste I, olives and feta cheese when I think about ancient Greece. <laughs> also, and I don't know if you guys have this problem, I can't picture Socrates without picturing the guy from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Socrates Johnson. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what to say. I, I don't have that confession. image personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, actually, I think we're 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 kind of excavating something that's useful. Um, I mean, if if the Middle Ages that we see in film epics today is basically undistinguishable from the from the from Middle Earth, um, except without orcs, um, you know, may, maybe this is 
you know, maybe we're getting back at, at the sense of ethic, not so much preserving an authentic national or ethnic identity as much as sort of making and, and presenting one. Um, I mean, do you think that guy, do you think that would work to explain what's going on here? I mean, yeah, and it would also explain why for a while, and I, I don't think this is over, I think it's still going on, we've been getting these um, demythologized versions of classic stories. Uh, you mentioned the terrible Arthur movie. Um, mm. That same summer, there was a movie called Troy that purported to be the Iliad without gods. Robert <sighs> Zemeckis, I think, is putting out a version of Robin Hood that looks like it's going to be, quote-unquote, gritty. <laughs> Which is another way of saying demythologized. Um, well, there wasn't a whole lot of mythology going on in Robin Hood, in 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 the the old stories anyway. I mean, once you extract the the version with the anthropomorphic fox, the the um, best version, I think you mean. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll, we'll concede but, you that. Know, that my wife Disney Victoria Fox. is a is a Renaissance um, scholar. For those of you who listening who don't know, and uh, she said that the anti king john people get together and still sing the phony king, king of england from uh from the disney robin hood really yeah well uh, apparently i'm not as plugged into that particular demographic as i should be because i didn't know that that's what that's what she said <laughs> anyway so so you, you're saying the robin hood isn't going to be demythologized because there's nothing to demythologize well, I, I I don't know. I ha I haven't seen it. It may they may demythologize it in the sense of uh, to to extract from it some of the the significance that it had. To right. uh, I, I think know. the myth they might be stripping away is Errol Flynn rather than any Middle English text, an unromanticized version. Yeah, I think that might be a better term. Right, right, because Errol Flynn brought this. You know, I you know I'm the charming debonair. You know, I, I I'm going to conquer, you know, the Norman invaders with, you know, with my fantastic smile and and you know rapier skills, um, yeah, uh, you know may, maybe maybe uh, Russell Crowe's Robin Hood is going <sighs> to be it a little looked more like hardcore. Gladiator with bows and arrows to me. Yeah. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing, but. <laughs> and frankly, I think you can only step up from Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. So, oh, <laughs> I like that version. Um, but I saw it when I was nine years old. Yeah, make allowances for that. <laughs> how, how dare you, Nathan? He doesn't do an accent. Come on, come on, Mike. Well, would you rather he do an accent? I would Have rather you ever he heard not... Kevin Costner's accents. I would rather he not be cast as Robin Hood. But you know. That's that's just me. No, let's hate on Troy. I think we can all hate on Troy. Yes. Can you hate on Troy, Nate? I've actually not seen it, so I, I will just trust that your hate is well-directed. It is an oh. abortion of a movie. Oh, my gosh. All right. Two things bug me most. They left out the gods. I don't understand how anything in the Iliad, how anything in that story makes sense if you leave the gods out. I walked out of that theater thinking that I was about as interested in a demythologized version of the Iliad as I am in Rudolph Boltman's uh, demythologized New Testament. Nice. N no, thank you. 
Yeah. Now, is this the one with Brad Pitt? Yes. Yes. And his okay, tree yeah, trunk arms. That's that the other thing I remember probably thinking. Probably wouldn't see it, and I was right. Okay, the the other thing. Okay, the other thing that annoys me. All right, all right. How does the Iliad begin? You know, laid me muses and singing of the rage of Achilles. All right. Um, this version, the movie version, Troy, it's uh, aid me, O muses, as I sing the world-weary ennui of Achilles. <laughs> yes? You know what they got right, though, is Paris? Oh, God. I, 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 hated, I hated Orlando Bloom's Paris, but he was so right. I mean, Orlando Bloom is one of the worst actors of our time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean he—he's just the right kind of whiny and annoying and a feat to play Paris. I, I did think they got that right. Yeah, but he lives, and he gets the girl in the end. Paris does. Yes, they kill. They kill Helen's husband. And Men Menelaus. Helen, and, yes, and Helen and okay, Paris okay. get away. I thought, thought you were going to drop on me that her husband wasn't Menelaus in the movie. No, 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 no. They kill him off. They kill off their husband, and she runs off with, with, with Paris in the end. <laughs> I, I, was, I was incandescent. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I got dragged to that movie by my friend Garrett, who loves uh, epic movies. He dragged me to that and Arthur in the same <laughs> summer, by the way. Wow. And, I mean, Arthur is even worse, because at least Troy had some pretty cool battle scenes. Arthur is, um, it is a movie that everyone involved with should never have a career again. <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Or at least terrible. be really ashamed with themselves. David, I want to hear you rant about the Robert Zemeckis Beowulf. I, I have been waiting all morning to hear you rant about it, and I want to hear you rant about it. <laughs> the Robert Zemeckis Beowulf strips it of its soul. Um... I, I, I think what, what we've been getting at, the notion of demythologizing, um, that's kind of the hot thing. One, because, you know, to kind of strip away, uh, you know, strip away the legendary trappings, okay, to make it gritty and realistic. Okay, that's one thing that, they're, that they say when they mean to demythologize. The other thing that they're doing, which I think uh, the, the you, know, you know, computer Beowulf does... It leaves in the monsters. What it demythologizes is the hero. And, you know, in the poem, uh, Grendel is not the son of Hrothgar and evil, <laughs> you know, evil demon Angelina Jolie. Um, Excuse and, me, David. Evil naked demon Angelina Jolie. That Who is barefoot make, but still wearing high heels. That doesn't make it better. That doesn't make it better. Um, the dragon is not the son of Beowulf and said naked demon Angelina Jolie with high. Wait, is that high really the plot of the movie? The the dragon is Beowulf's son. Oh yes. yeah, just as Grendel is Hrothgar's son. But holy yes. cow! They turn Grendel's the... mother is a an ancient seductress who corrupts the kings of the Danes. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. That that basically the monsters that they fight are the karma of their of their purported heroism coming back to get them. That made me more angry than naked Angelina Jolie with high heels. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't see that movie because I had no interest and I knew it would be terrible. Well, and that and and that to me, you know, that's my bit. That's my big complaint is that. You know, they kept 
you know, they kept a basic plot line. They kept characters. But what they what they stripped from the from the story was what made the Beowulf hero heroic, and what made what he did heroic. Um, and when you do that, you I I, I feel like you you you've stripped the story of its soul. Um, you know, I would say that uh, that George Clooney's character in Oh Brother Where Art Thou is closer to Odysseus <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> than the Go Robert Zemeckis Beowulf is to Beowulf. All right, because because by cha- by changing those parts of the story, you the 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 story loses its soul. It's not the same story anymore. Now, it was still marginally better than the Gerard, Gerard Butler Beowulf. And what both Gerard of them, Butler Beowulf. Yes, Beowulf and Grendel. It was filmed in Iceland, and Grendel is supposed to be this displaced aborigine with a uh, a just vendetta against the Danes, who uh, mercilessly slaughtered him and his simple cave people. I see. So the movie should have just been called White Guilt. The movie. Yes. So that um, really is a demythologized Beowulf. Right. Right. Um, and both of those were better than the Christopher Lambert Beowulf. Which is post-apocalyptic, and I actually, I, I actually think that that the Zemeckis film cribs some things because in in the Christopher Lambert awful post-apocalyptic Beowulf, Grendel, um, uh, I think actually is supposed to be the offspring of King Hrothgar, who was seduced by weird aquatic demon lady. David, what do you think of uh, John Gardner's Grendel book? Um. I respect it because it's because it's interesting and because I, I I don't I don't think Gardner I don't think Gardner was presenting it as a reading of, of as a reading of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. I think he was presenting it more as you know kind of a commentary on you know philosophical notions and literary ideas. So I can appreciate it because it's not it's I I I I like John Gardner's Grendel because it's not pretending to be Beowulf in the way that the Zemeckis film is. That's right. right because your students are going to come to your class to read Beowulf and they're going to think it's like that movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I like but, it. David, can I offer a 30-second critique of Zemeckis and then I'll yes. turn it back to you? Absolutely, go for it. There are two things that Beowulf the poem lacks entirely. One of them is Christianity. The other mm-hmm. one is sex, and it mm-hmm. is better for it. That is it. Yep. <laughs> that I've got an even shorter Enough critique, said. not having seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually have the script. Um, I actually have the script on my bookshelf. Um, just because... Uh, Well, for one thing, I feel if I've got, if I'm going to launch into it, I better be able to cite my sources. Um, but it must also, be awful to have to watch all the all the uh, movies that come out based on epics, David. It must it must be bad to study that because so many of those epic movies are so bad. Well, I, I think it's because you know because they think of epic as a big movie that has a battle in it. Um. But then try to make the soul of it modern, or 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 trendy, or whatever. And there's and nothing so, modern about an epic, which is Bakhtin's whole point. 
Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I think really the the closest the closest I think that you get to the the spirit of of the classic epic you will find in the Lord of the Rings movies, and that's not because who filmed it were trying to preserve the spirit of the classical epic, but it was because Tolkien was trying, was doing his darndest to channel it. Um, and not, and you know, not perfectly. And it's still a very modern work. Okay. I, you know, the Lord of the Rings is not mid medieval. Tolkien was not some medieval guy in the, you know, in the 20th century, he was still very much a 20th century guy looking back to the past, um, but still standing where he was in time and interested in in what he was interested in in because of where he stood in time. I mean I'm not saying that, but he respected what he got out of the past in a in he respected his source material in a way that the the people producing these films I don't think do and he trusted it to be strong. Um and and effective in what it set out to do. And so what he what he did um, I think tried to imitate that, and as a result, when they adapt him, trusting him to work because he's 20th century, um, that it does work, and I, I, I think I think it's kind of weird and ironic um, that that the creative production of a, of, of a, of a modern mind enamored of the, of the medieval and of the ancient would end up, uh, having its, its book turned into movie more faithful to the spirit of, 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 of the epic than movies based on the epics themselves. Anyway, that's, 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 that's my, that's my soapbox. Um, let's see. Are there any epic movies that we think do it do it right, or are 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 we just gonna you know kind of wish that somebody would write the epic we want to watch? <laughs> There's a version I, I, of Paradise Lost coming to, out. I, I would still point back to Pete Jackson's Lord of the Rings films as movies that actually get the spirit of the epic basically right. Okay. What would you say, Paradise Lost? Yeah, they're making a Paradise Lost movie, supposedly. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if it'll be any better. I, than I think the I'd Dante. rather play the Dante's Inferno video game. I, think. I was going to say, I think that's what we can all agree on: the Dante's Inferno video game being the oh, yeah. uh, the best cultural manifestation of epic. Oh yeah, yeah. In which Dante comes back from the Crusades in order to find his love Beatrice slain. And so he goes to hell to rescue her with his giant death scythe? Wait, is that actually the plot of that game? Yes, oh, it is. yes. <laughs> At that point, you're not really, it's not really Dante's Inferno anymore, is it? Isn't it right. just now, the now, Inferno? Now we're, yeah, we're, we're mixing up, you know, Orpheus and... Oh, holy cow. Dante and <laughs> Beowulf and all kinds of groovy things. Well, you we all need to get though. together and play that game, clearly. Well, you got to admit though that if you read Dante's Inferno, um he's not really occupying a position that someone playing a video game would want to be in. No. You, know, I, you mean I, you I, mean tourist? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he doesn't really do anything, does he? <laughs> I mean, he, he, you know, well, you know, now that I think of it, I actually could picture Dante in Bermuda shorts and an Aloha shirt. <laughs> 
kind of going through hell. <gasps> oh, gasp, the horrors. <laughs> I want to know what the worst of the worst is. What What's the worst movie based off of an epic uh, poem? Ooh. Hmm. Yeah, you got any, Nathan? I mean, I I haven't watched that many movies based on epics. I mean, Zemeckis' oh. Beowulf immediately comes to mind. Um, but I mean, I haven't seen those other Beowulfs. So yeah, but I, I think Troy is worse. Okay, I haven't seen that one, so I'll, I, I, I'll it, yeah, on that one. Troy it, is it, bad. It, Arthur it, is worse than Troy. Although Arthur, I guess, is well, not based on a exactly. Arthur film. has Arthur has the virtue of not being not being actually based on um, any particular version. It's actually based on a book that came out in the 1970s that uh, attempted to posit a historical Arthur on the basis of uh, the way the Romans would uh, would actually recruit uh, from the from the different nations that they conquered uh, soldiers and then colonize them, you know settle settle them on the opposite side of the empire to serve as a kind of uh, you know native uh, as a kind of resident home guard loyal to Rome because it was not uh, you know, because it was ethnically distinct from the place where they settled, um, they felt that they could trust these guys to stay put, not go native, and stay loyal to the empire. And there actually was a contingent of of heavy cavalry taken from, uh, you know, what is now uh, the Ukraine uh, that was that was actually settled uh, at Hadrian's Wall. And they then so they took this book from the 1970s. Uh, I can't remember the title of it, but it had Sarmatians in it. Um, they took that book and then just kind of built built around that historical fact, but then turned the Britons into these kind of cartoon druids, turned the Romans into cartoon Romans, and turned the Anglo-Saxons into... So it, it it was yeah I, I think it was weirdly unsuccessful because they took this one bit of history and then proceeded to turn all of the other history into one dimensional parody. That that is among the worst movies I've ever seen in my life, Arthur. It made yeah. I mean I was begging for Troy. Yeah. About halfway <laughs> through Arthur. Well, okay, another critique of Troy. You could not do what they do with bronze weapons. I'm sorry. They're too heavy, and they aren't going to hold that good of an edge. Now, we can't simultaneously complain that they take the supernatural elements out of Troy and that it's unrealistic. Uh, yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me what we can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna peg Troy as my worst, as my worst epic movie because not only does it, does it strip out the supernatural, but it also jettisons the heart of the epic. And yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Well, I think. Uh, and and uh, I think we 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 agreed. Lord of the Rings is the bestest. Uh, Troy vying with Arthur and uh, Zemeckis' Beowulf are the worstest. And we're really waiting for somebody to give us an epic movie of an actual epic that we really love. You know what I want is for a listener to play the Dante's Inferno video game and send us a review of it. That would be cool too. 
I wish we had gear, you know, some kind of swag that we could, you know, give as prizes for. We'll such send things. you a uh, Christian Humanist podcast windbreaker if you uh, if you play that game for us. <laughs> Do we have those? Are we public radio? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about wraps up our conversation. Um, what have we got going for next week? Well, next week we're going to wrap up our trilogy about movies with the discussion of tragedy. Uh, I'm going to try to get to the movies a bit quicker than you two gentlemen did. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we're going to, uh, well, like I said, finish out movies. We'll see where it takes us. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, uh, you can, uh, if you would like to leave some feedback on this episode or anything at all, uh, you can send an uh, email to us at... Uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com you can also visit us uh, at our website and leave comments we have a blog now hooray um, which is uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb and you can listen to the episodes at uh, christian uh, well you can also find the podcast there uh, linked as well um so, this is David Grubbs for Michael Farmer and for Nathan Gilmore, wishing you all grand weeks, and as Luther said, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Oh, she-